to the Bean Ninjas podcast, where you get an all-access pass to see what happens behind the closed doors of a fast-growing global bookkeeping and financial reporting business. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bean Ninjas podcast. And today we're joined by Brian Cassell. Welcome, Brian. Hey, Meryl. How's it going? Yeah, great. It's really good to be chatting with you. I know I have spoken with you a number of times also on your podcast and used uh, one of your productized services, Audience Ops. And so it's great to have you on the Be Ninjas podcast. There's so many different things I want to chat with you about. But why don't we start with a little bit of your backstory? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, as always, great to connect with you. Um, I've I've always been impressed with with what you've built with uh, with Bean Ninjas for sure. It's it's one of the uh, I, I really think it's like one of the great productized service businesses out there. It's, it's a really good you know example of that for sure. Um, yeah, so uh, I mean, I come. From, I don't know how far back <laughs> you you want to go here, but um, uh, you know, I I started out uh, my career as a web designer. I, I like I worked at a web design agency and then um, went out as a freelancer, like freelance web designer for a couple of years. And then that sort of morphed into a couple of different products and product businesses and uh, the running theme on, on most of the, the major businesses that I've been involved in the last few years has been productized services, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, mixing between SaaS and, and productized services. And, and then I do some, teaching and uh, I have a course and I do some podcasting. So yeah, I'm kind of all over the map, basically. <laughs> and, and learning coding in recent years. I always yeah. wonder how you think it'll live. Yeah. I mean, that's been the, the latest thing for me um, from, tw- you know, like 2018 up till now, 2019, I've been um, really spending the bulk of my time learning to code. I've, I've always been uh, a front end designer developer. So, you know, uh, HTML, CSS, little JavaScript. That's always been um, no problem for me, but uh, it wasn't until 2018 that I started to learn backend development. So I've been learning Ruby on Rails and uh, I'm now, I'm not very good, but I'm I'm actually capable of designing and building and launching a, a full application. I'm kind of slow at it, but I could actually do it. Whereas before I could design it and make some templates, but then I would have to, you know, hire a developer or someone. So uh, I'm happy to say that I, I don't fully rely on having to hire developers anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd like to dig into that a little bit later in the podcast, because I think that's a, an interesting story in itself, the way that you are able firstly to free up time to, to be able to devote the time to learn a new skill like that. And I have some yep. other questions around that, but I want to go Back into that transition of yours, so you talked about doing freelance web design and then going into productized services. And what sparked you to, or I know there's a lot of challenges that many freelancers face with running that style of business. And how did you manage to make that transition to a productized service? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it was so direct or, or overnight. It was definitely, um, so I mean, I was a freelance web designer, you know, the typical thing, kind of working project to project. Um, uh, I had my own clients and sometimes I hired other freelancers and formed, you know, collectives on on different projects. Um, and that worked fine for a couple of years there. Uh, but I I started to run into a lot of the same frustrations that a lot of 
uh, freelancers and consultants do, what, whether it's, you know, dealing with some clients who aren't so great to deal with or, you know, writing all those long proposals and, you know, only winning some of them and um, just getting burnt out and, and feeling like I can't step away from my computer without, you know, taking a pay cut, basically, because all, all of my projects relied on myself to be there um, and do the work or, or get the work or, or things like that. Um, and so I, I started, you know, transitioning into doing products, um, did a few like digital products here and there, but you know, none, none of those were really significant enough to, to fully replace my income as a freelancer. Um, but it wasn't until I really started to embrace the idea of a productized service that I was able to, to move that needle and eventually, um, let uh, productized service income start to fully replace my my income as a freelancer, and then I started using that to to leverage that and like build businesses that you know one that I was able to then sell and then you know move on to another one and sort of like stair step my way up up till today. Um, but going back to that transition, I mean the the big. The main transition period, I think, was when I got into a business called Restaurant Engine. So I had I had been a freelance web designer. I was doing a lot of work with WordPress, and um, I wanted to build a SaaS, like a software as a service business. Um, and for me, as a WordPress person, that the, the easiest entryway to that I thought would be to build a like a hosted WordPress website service where clients would come and sign up for an account and have their website automatically created. And then they can log in and customize their own site and, and pay month to month to have it hosted and managed through this, through this service. And then I can magically step away and it would be amazing. Um, but unfortunately what I learned was, you know, most of those customers didn't want to, uh, set it up themselves. They didn't have the time. They didn't have the expertise. And and I was focusing on restaurants and hotels as as the target um, industry for that. And so I started like offering like a done for you. Like, well, if I just set up the website for you on this platform, you know, will you stay on? And and that definitely was the case. And then I started charging for that setup service. Um, then I made that setup service required. And then I hired a customer support team to do that setup service instead of me. And so um, that ultimately made it so that like the team was just onboarding clients, you know, setting up, the, doing this done for you website service, doing the done for you website updates. And, and it was recurring revenue. It was growing. And I started really removing myself, not only from the service side of things, um, but also from the sales and then from the marketing, the content marketing and all of that. And, and that, that business grew um, over a couple of years and I was able to actually sell it in, in 2015. Um, at, at which point I started my next, my, my current business audience ops, um, which was also a productized service. And I mean, we can get into that, but um, that was really that, that restaurant engine business, which I started around 2011, 2012, and then sold in 2015. I mean, that was that, that bridge for me that, you know, from going from like freelance web designer to um, like a building a, a brand or a product that could actually grow and scale. And, and I was able to remove myself and ultimately sell it to a new owner. That's a great story. And, and it's interesting to know that time period as well. So it sounds like it took about three years from you starting on that business and then exited about three years later, having 
almost remove yourself from the business over that period with customer support, sales, and, and building a brand. And yeah, about three three to four years. Three, I, three like years. some of that was sort of developing it. Yep. Hmm. And what inspired you to sell that business, or what was your motivation? Um, yeah, at the time, so we're getting into 2015. Um, I was, I mean, you know, that, that entire business was completely focused on selling to the restaurant industry and the hotel industry. And to be honest, I didn't really have that personal connection at all to that, to those people. Um, you know, uh, and so I, I, you know, I, I, it just felt a little disconnected from everything else that I was involved in. And I, 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 at that time I had started building up a network of other founders, software people, um, agencies, consultants, freelancers, and people just working in digital products in one form or another. And I had started selling my course called productize to those people. And, and, um, I just felt more connected to the, to those people and less connected to the restaurant industry. And so it just seemed like it would make more sense to sell that business, take, you know, a couple of years worth of profit from it and then use that to, um, well, actually I used most of that money to buy a house, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, it, but it also like gave me the freedom to, to take a few months and start up my next business. So. And did you already have the idea for your next business before you were, in fact, I imagine as an entrepreneur, you probably have lots of ideas and seeing all of the different projects you work on, how did you decide on your next, what your next business was going to be? Yeah, that's a good question. So there was a period there, like for about four months or so in in 2015, where I knew that Restaurant Engine was selling, like it was in the process of like, you know, we had a contract and it was going through due diligence. I knew that there was a closing date coming up and I was very much not certain of what my next business was going to be. Um, I did have like three or four different business ideas that I was kicking around. and so most of those were software ideas, like SaaS business ideas. Um, and I was, I was researching those. I was sort of testing them out a little bit. But the conclusion that I came to at that time was, you know, to launch a software business, um, it, I would need at least a year of time to just develop the the product, you know, um, just to have it built and, and all that, and maybe get a couple of first customers paying a little bit of money, but, it, but one year and it wouldn't even come close to replacing the income that I was, that I had from restaurant engine, like that just wasn't sustainable. And I mean, you know, the, the exit from restaurant engine, like it was, it was more money than I had seen before that, but it wasn't like, it wasn't life-changing money. Like I, I definitely had to replace that income somehow. And, um, and like I said, I, I put a lot of it into savings and my family moved into a house and everything. I didn't want to just burn all of that cash on just, you know, starting up a software business. And so, um, so the conclusion I came to was like, I need a, a business model that will get me to revenue much faster than, than building up a SaaS. And so I, so the idea of audience ops was one of those ideas that I was kicking around and, and it ultimately was the most attractive because, um, it's a productized service, didn't require building any software. I could, uh, pitch it to, to people in my network that I was already connected to, you know, other software founders and, and people like that. And, um, and within 30 days, I was able to, to land the first couple of customers for it. Um, it's recurring revenue. It's a higher price point than a typical SaaS because it is a, a done for you 
you know, blog content service. So, um, uh, you know, in, in that sense, it, it was, it was just a lot faster to, to build up that revenue. And I mean, it was actually just a matter of months, like six months or something like that to, to where it, it surpassed the the monthly recurring revenue from my previous business that I had been working on for like four years. Um, so that one, you know, audience ops in that first year, 2015 into 2016, it, it really grew pretty fast. And I think it's interesting because you already had a productized service. So you would have learned a lot of lessons along the way. And then starting a second one, how did you go about building it and, and hiring your team? So you would have identified what you were selling, which was the done for you content. Who were your first couple of hires? Yeah, I mean, one of the things with the idea to start Audience Ops was that I knew, um, or sort of like to justify it to myself of like why I should start this business, it would be like, I definitely don't want to be the one writing the content. Like I, I did not set out to start a new consulting service where I'm the one doing the work. <laughs> I had done that before with, with web design. So I knew that no matter what, like from day one, I would need to hire writers. And I, I think I hired maybe two freelance writers as my first hires from from day one or probably around the same week or two that I that I landed those first customers. Um, and then and then we, you know, what I, what I advise people with productized services is that you don't need to like figure out the entire process and all the details ahead of time. That's the beauty of it is that you can literally just focus on the value proposition and the price point and who, who you, you want to sell it to focus on that first land, those customers, and then just start delivering the service. It might not be so efficient at first, but you can just sort of figure that out as you deliver to those very first customers. And that's, that's what we did, um, with the writers. Uh, I, you know, we figured out everything from how, how long does it take to produce one article and how much lead time do we need to build into our production schedule? And, um, what are the exact deliverables that we should be including for, for clients in these packages? And, and what are the questions that clients have and, and all of that? Um, so we did that with a couple of freelancers and then pretty soon into it, uh, we hired an assistant, like a virtual assistant to help with some of the little things like setting up blog posts and WordPress and email newsletters and stuff like that. Um, uh, and, and I remember a point, it was probably around three months in where we probably had like five or seven or eight clients by that point. Um, and plenty of demand, but I had to pause all, all new sales and just stop and continue to serve the, the early batch of clients. But then we, we took about two more months to just stop and really organize our processes. Like, okay, like, like everything that we've learned in those first couple of months, let's organize it into a better client onboarding process and the week to week production schedule and get our processes documented and, and everything. And, and I think I had hired a, a project manager by that point. Um, so then, you know, four or five months in, we were able to unpause sales and have all this capacity and the systems in place to keep growing from there. And I think one of the challenges that a lot of freelancers face when they change that mindset to growing a business is the cash flow or, or being able to hire ahead. So if when you're a freelancer and it's just you, every hour that you work or project that you work on, that, that money is going directly to you. Whereas if you're hiring 
skilled staff, then all of a sudden you might need to actually take a pay cut or it impacts, uh, yeah, the the money that's going to your bank account. So how did you manage that as you were building your team? Um, Yeah, that's a good question. So a few things. I mean, number one, the pricing, the the way the the billing works on audience apps is that everything is paid up front by the client. Um, They they pay either uh, monthly or quarterly subscriptions. And so um, basically that helps with cash flow because the, the revenue comes in first and then the team produces the content. And then I pay the team every two weeks, but it's after, after they deliver their, their deliverables. So, so the timing on that is, it helps. Um, but the other thing that I learned pretty early on, like during that first year of audience ops was, um, like at first we, we paid everybody by the hour, the free, like freelancers by the hour. And, and, you know, like two, two freelancers might be equally, um, skilled, talented. They, they could equally, they could produce a more or less a, the same quality article, but one, um, you know, takes half as long as the other. Um, and that makes costs pretty unpredictable. And so, um, pretty soon into it, uh, I learned that, it's it's best if you if you keep those costs uh very standardized across the team and so now every role in audience ops has uh basically a standard pay rate and we pay per deliverable so so we literally know like f- for every client that's that's buying a a package that package includes x number of articles in a month like we know the costs to to produce a single article and and you know configure out the profit margins and everything I can see that working well with something like writing a piece of content. What about with managers? So say project managers, how, what are their deliverables or, or how do you structure that? Yeah, um, it's it's actually kind of the same way. It's a little bit different though. So uh, with managers, we we pay them per client that they manage per month. Um, and there are a couple of very, very like variants in there, like is the client onboarding that get paid a little bit more for that first month? Um, does the client have, you know, a, a higher plan or a lower plan? Um, but still those are like standard rate variations for the managers. And um, basically their role in audience ops is to be the person, basically be the point of contact for the client. Um, so they hand, they kind of host the, the onboarding calls. They, interface between receiving feedback from the client and then passing that along to the writers internally they're making sure that the writers are delivering things on time and then they're preparing the deliverables and sending them back to the clients and like they're just that go between um handling those details um and then the nice thing is that that removes like having these managers in place really removes a lot of the just a lot of the extra work that a typical freelance writer would have to do like if you just hire a single writer like they're not just writing for you they're also being they're also managing you as the client right so they're they're talk they're communicating they're fielding replies they're doing the sales and the onboarding and all that um with audience ops our writers can just focus on researching and writing um they do actually talk to the clients occasionally to like interview them about topics but um all of the management and the and the scheduling and all the, you know, just like the detail oriented stuff of, of like organization. That's where the the managers come in. Um, and, and just like most of the roles, like they, 
managers actually are part-time um, in audience ops. And I mean, some of them are, they spend half or, or most of their week with us, but um, they too are like stay-at-home parents or they're freelancers and they're doing other stuff outside of audience ops. And they just sort of check in day to day for, you know, one, two, maybe two and a half hours to check in on their clients, check all their emails, uh, maybe handle a, a client call here and there. But um, yeah, it's, it's sort of just like optimized that way. We found part-time staff work really well at Beamages too. We actually have a, we have some full-time, but quite a proportion of contractors and part-time staff, as you said, stay-at-home parents and, and people that may only want to work a couple of hours a day. And I was surprised actually, there's some really high quality people who are only wanting to work or not wanting to work a full work week. Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been amazed at that, and really, just that's the thing that I I love the most about audience ops is is the team. I mean, the, they are really talented um, people who maybe they, they've come from corporate jobs and they they just don't want that anymore. And yeah, like they're stay at home parents, or or they they just want to do personal projects like freelancing or starting their own business and and having a something like audience ops or bean ninjas to, to be like that steady, um, reliable, you know, good quality work to balance out the, uh, the roller coaster stuff of freelancing. I mean, that's, that's really good. So let's look at where you were after 12 months with audience ops. If you can, if you can remember about how many hours would you have been working in that business? Uh, do you, do you mean like in the beginning? No, so so when the business was twelve months old, because I know you've you've been able to oh. gradually remove yourself, and so I'm just trying to uh, just almost describe like a timeline for the audience of, of what that might have looked like. Oh yeah, um, let's see. So like we're probably getting into 2016. Um, yeah, I mean that year I was probably still pretty heavily into it, but my role has always really been figuring out the processes and the. And, and the details and, and hiring people um, uh, and, and then also doing the sales. Um, but again, like not like by 2016, I definitely had managers in place. I think, I think at that point we might've started to hire um, beyond the first manager that we had. Um, uh, let's see. I mean, I, I did start to gain a little bit more freedom in 2016 from, from 2015 you know like uh the the business was was very profitable that year too so so that made it easier to um to like take time off and do and do traveling actually from 2015 actually the whole time that i was launching audience ops um like the first eight months of it i was actually traveling full-time with my family (laughs) uh like um, we were going from Airbnb to Airbnb throughout the U.S. in, in a car with a, my one-year-old at the time and, and our dog and everything, and and we would like stop. We would live in a house for like two weeks, and I would get a bunch of work done on the business, and then and then we'd be like on the road for a week, and I wasn't really working much, and um, yeah, it was kind of hectic, but kind of fun at the same time. Um, but yeah, like like 2016, like it started to back off a little bit. I mean, there would be times like throughout the business, 2016, 2017, where I would just put in a, a whole batch of effort, where, whether it's like a new marketing campaign or, or at one point we totally overhauled our client onboarding process, um, you know, things like that. Like I would 
I would put in a lot of work, but then some sometimes work would really back off and I could start working on other projects. And were you also working on your community and info product at, at the same time as you were working on audience ops or did you have to put that on pause for a little while? How, how did you balance that? Yeah. So like my, my main product there is called productize. That's a course and a community all about productized services, you know, fr- freelancers, consultants who are, um, you know, forming a, a productized service and want to, want to grow beyond their hourly billing type of work. Um, I actually initially launched that at the end of 2014. So I, I had, I was still working on restaurant engine at the time. Um, but then I, then I re then I like updated the course in 2016 and then I did a very big update on it in 2018. Um, the nice thing about that is that it's basically a passive income type of business and it's, it's a side business from, from everything else that I do. It's about, I don't know, 20, 25% of, of my income, but it's, um, it's significant, but it's not the main thing. Um, but the, the nice thing about it is that it's passive. So it's like, I can, you know, hop into it for like one month out of a year and, and do a big update on it and then let it just sort of like run the rest of the year while I focus on my, on my primary business. Um, there is a, a community with that. And I, I sort of drop in there, uh, as, as much as I can. Um, it's not like super active, uh, but it's, uh, we've got a nice group of, of, you know, a couple hundred people in there. Um, and then I, occasionally I'll do some coaching calls through that, uh, maybe a couple of those a month, which I, I enjoy doing that. But it's um, again, it's like a side, a side thing. So. Yeah. And so, what does a work week look like these days? What proportion of your time are you spending on audience ops and then your other projects? And I think you have some other projects as well, or, or side businesses that you haven't mentioned. So, if you want to have a chat about those, yeah, too. yeah. So, I mean, if we move up the timeline a bit, and now we're getting into twenty eighteen. Like all of last year of 2018, like my my time investment in, in audience ops is is very very small. I mean, I'm, it's it's at the point for the past year, almost two years, that I'm only spending now about two hours per week um, in audience ops. You know, doing a few sales calls and doing and you know taking a couple of escalated questions from the team, but most of those are are dealt with with the managers and the, and the team in place, it's been pretty steady and solid. Um, so last year, 2018, I invested almost all of my time in learning to code. Um, I think we touched yes. on it briefly earlier. Um, so yeah, like I, I had been a, a front end designer and developer. Um, but I was always sort of frustrated with the fact that like, if I have an idea for a software product, I hit this wall where, after I design it, after I talk to customers about it, I would then either have to spend a bunch of cash on hiring a developer or or just wait until I have the cash available to do that. Um, and then, you know, sometimes I'm not even that satisfied with, with you know, the outcome with, with working with developers. Um, so, you know, like I, I felt like as a, as a product designer, I, I really wanted to be able to at least design the full stack for like a version one, like a, like a minimum viable product, if you will. Um, so I invested all my time last year in learning uh, Ruby on Rails and um, went through a bunch of courses. I worked with a coach, did a bunch of practice projects and whatnot. And, and um, you know, about eight or 10 months into that journey, I was able to start building real products with it. So um, a couple of months ago, I started this little... It's a very small app called Sunrise KPI. 
and it's a it's it's at sunrisekpi.com. Um, basically, I just wanted for myself uh, a tool that I can connect all my different services to, like my metrics, and get a daily email to tell me all my numbers, my my KPIs. So, you know, you can connect to your Google Analytics, your Stripe, your Mailchimp, or Drip, or ConvertKit, or your Twitter, a bunch of other services to it. You can connect a spreadsheet to it, like, and and it'll get all of your numbers and just send you a, an automated email with your numbers. And that's what I wanted for myself. So I used that as like a good practice learning project, but, but also launched it as a real product a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, that was one. And then the, the, the bigger project that I'm really sinking into right now is called process kit. And that will be a software product, um, for, creating processes and managing all of your repeatable projects which you know obviously falls pretty pretty much in line with with what i've been talking about with with productized services so if your business has repeatable you know lots of repeatable work whether you're whether you're doing bookkeeping or you know or websites or podcast production or you know um anything like that you can you can create uh processes or or workflows and then attach those to projects that repeat and you know the the software will automatically assign the right people automatically um calculate the due dates and and do some other automation stuff with your team and and really try to make your your business and and projects run more predictably and rather than having all this sort of like chaos that happens when you know things when you reach those edge cases and things kind of go off the rails and so i've been designing that and and I've got an early access group um, for Process Kit going, and uh, you know we're recording this here in February. I'm I'm hoping you know by May or so to have a first version of that ready for for users to use, and I'm gonna try to you know spend most of this year focused on that. When you originally, when I read the product name Process Kit, I originally thought it was going to be something like a sweet process type tool where you documented your processes, but hearing you describe that more, it sounds like a workflow tool where you assign to it. Is it more like a, a Trello or a project management tool that helps you prioritize yeah. service type businesses with recurring tasks? Yeah, it's actually a kind of a merger of the two, if you will. Um, it, it is very much a place where you can document your your processes, but the processes are, like you said, like, like more like workflows. So, um, so there, there would be steps that, that can have decision points or steps that send off a template email to a client and they have to click approve and then it comes back into process kit. Um, but the main thing that I've seen, the main pain point really that I've seen in, in our business and, and from talking to other businesses is, is that, you know, your projects happen in, in one place, whether it's Trello or Basecamp or Asana, and your documented processes, your SOPs tend to be stored somewhere else, whether it's like a process tool or a, or Google Docs or something. And, and they're sort of in these silos. And so the team doesn't really have the instructions at their fingertips, like in the same place where they're tracking and, and working on the projects. And so with Process Kit, it will be both a place to organize your repeatable projects and a place to uh, manage your processes and and your processes get attached to those projects um, and you can do that automatically so um, you know if you have a new bookkeeping project it automatically gets the bookkeeping process 
That makes sense. You know, and so we actually have that pain point in our business because we have a, a place where we store all of our standard operating procedures and we use sweet process. And then we have a different workflow system called Bright, which is the step-by-step and the tasks and checklists of how it actually works. So yep. we have that um, yeah, exact situation. Mm. Yeah. I mean, with us, it's, it's been similar. Like we, we sort of track articles that go through our production line using Trello, but then our very detailed SOPs are, are in Google Docs. And we sort of like have like a template Trello card that we're supposed to duplicate, but then we automatically archive it and people lose their place. And it's kind of a mess. Um, but yeah. And, and I mean, really, I think so. so there's that, but I think there's more automation that can be built in when you have like a dedicated tool. Um, you know, like if it's a, you know, I, I like, for example, I, I don't know if this is how it works in your business, but if you have like a client who's using zero versus a client who's using QuickBooks, you know, the process can have that variation built in. So it's like, if, if a, or if B, then use these steps instead of these steps and that sort of thing. Nice example. Ryan's asked me a few times when Bean Ninjas is um, starting with QuickBooks. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I wanted to steer the conversation now into a couple of content, one around productivity and then also around finishing because someone could look at all that you produce and think, gee, does Brian work an 80-hour work week? You get so much done. And so first of all, I wanted to to ask about your approach to making sure that you finish tasks. And then I've got some questions around how you structure your work week. Let's start with the the first one. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest, like I get, I get asked that question a lot from people, but I don't, I mean, I I honestly don't work more than like 35 hours. Some weeks, like 40 hours a week. Like it's not, I'm not working crazy hours to be honest. Um, I've got little kids at home, you know, I, I try to hang out with them and, and, um, but I work like a normal work week. Uh, I think the, one of the big advantages of it is having a business audience ops that basically pays for my time, but frees me up. I, I'm literally only spending two hours a week, if, if even that most weeks. So I have all those hours, um, you know, and, and my, basically my, my salary is covered from that business. So, um, you know, I, I know that a a lot of freelancers and people working in a job, like they sort of have to, you know, bootstrap on nights and weekends. And I've been there. I I spent years doing that. Um, and, and that's, that is what's sort of required in in a lot of cases, but as you start to level up and, and, and stair step from one business to the next, like I feel pretty lucky that in the last year or two, I've finally been able to get to a point where I have, um, I actually just wrote about this last week where I I feel like I have this space to breathe, um, to actually work on creating and learning and, and just exploring different ideas day to day while I have a pretty steady income coming from somewhere else. Um, I, I feel like that should be the goal for a lot of people. If, if your goal is to is to get to, uh, to doing, you know, different products. Um, I mean, in terms of productivity or like my day to day, like I, I wake up, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm up pretty early. Um, but most weekdays, I mean, I, I, uh, I get my kids up and I drive them to school. Um, and I'm doing, I'll have my bulletproof coffee in the morning and then, uh, and then I'm, I'm working in my office probably by around, um, nine 
or so. I, I take my kids around 8.30 and then I'm, I'm in here by 9. And are you working from a um, home office or are you working at a space somewhere else? Uh, yeah, I have a home office, which I really enjoy, um, but I get a little bit uh, a little bit sick of my house. So uh, three or four days a week, I'll go out to the coffee shop and take my laptop for about three hours just, just to get out. Um, but most of the work that I do uh, happens here in the office. Yeah. And do you, do you have any trouble managing distractions when you're at home? Or it sounds like your kids are, are off, at, off to school during the day, so you, wouldn't, you would have uninterrupted time. Well, they're still pretty young. I mean, they're, they're two and four. So, um, there's a few hours in the morning where they're, where they're out, but, uh, most of the day they're actually at home and making all sorts of noise in the next room. So <laughs> that's, that's usually when I, I head out to the coffee shop. Um, uh, well that and my, uh, and my Bose noise canceling headphones help yes. a lot too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be managing this uh, well in a month or two. Uh, our daughter's due yeah. in yeah, six weeks. So they're not they're not yeah, oh, yeah. balancing the the work and, and family life too. So Yep, no <laughs> <laughs> It's uh it's it's like survival mode there for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. It's been so great talking with you, Brian. There's I know we've covered a, a range of different topics and it's yeah, I've, I've got a lot of admiration for the work that you do in audience ops, but also the way that you've freed yourself up, created processes and have these other side businesses as well. So it's been great talking with you. Yeah. Yeah. Meryl, thanks for having me on. And if the audience wanted to get in touch, what's the best way to, to reach out to you? Uh, yeah, I mean, my website is, is briancastle.com. Um, I've got some articles and things on there, but mainly it's my newsletter. That's, that's where I write and send like really the most um, honest and, and up-to-date updates, you know, stuff that I don't publish, uh, publicly. I try to send that newsletter every Saturday and, um, yeah, that's available at briancastle.com and, um, uh, I'm sort of active on, on Twitter at Cast Jam. Great. Well, thanks again, Brian. And yeah, let's stay in touch. Mm-hmm.